All right. We are going to be in two passages primarily. They're both familiar passages. They both tie into Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, the commemoration of which is found in Corinthians chapter... Wait, wait. Wait a minute. I looked in my Bible and Valentine's Day is not in the Bible at all. Even a little bit. This is a crazy thing to think about. The Apostle Paul never tasted chocolate. Cocoa beans are in South America. He never enjoyed a chocolate bar his whole life. There is something in the New Testament here that we'll examine that is better, that is far better than Valentine's Day. The culture is lying about love. The culture is lying not in the dominant sense about areas of sexual sin and sexual deviance being redefined to say that they're not sinful. That's what a lot of folks focus on. It's very obvious as a problem, and it is a problem, when you take sins and say, we're going to march in support of this sin. That's pretty bold in our culture to say that we're disobeying the law of God. But that's not the dominant lie. There are two bigger, much bigger lies, and they're both dealt with by these passages. The first dominant lie in our culture, and this one is very common and very prevalent even within churches where people don't have a problem with it, is that we can find salvation through romantic love. That lie is so ubiquitous that it's, if you tried to tally up the number of songs, the number of movies, the number of books, the number of poems, the amount of art generally that is created toward that, it would be hard to even summarize. You could even say most of popular culture is building things out of the belief that there's someone out there for you. Now, as our culture changes that, they expand the playing field. There are people now who are marrying dolls. There are people who are in love with their animals. There are people who are in love with robots. But our culture is changing how many people it could be. But here's the biggest lie. It's not just that It's different from what God designed, which is all proper pursuit of romantic love is between a man and a woman. And all proper pursuit of romantic love that includes sex is between a man and a woman who are married to each other. But a bigger lie just than that is that you find salvation in that. There's a whole bunch of people who weren't allowed to get married who now are allowed to get married. And so they get to be miserable like the rest of married people. Just a little joke. Marriage is awesome. God designed marriage. But... But people who thought, well, if I could get married, then everything's solved, are realizing that's not true. Because none of us can find ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, completeness in marriage. That's not where it comes from. The second lie is that we should turn away from pursuing romantic love and pursue what Whitney Houston called the greatest love of all. It's deeply in the 
therapeutic terms, self-love, the most important love, the foundational love. For if one does not love oneself, how could someone love anyone else? Jesus came as a suffering servant. He did not consider equality with God to be something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself. Jesus was not full of high regard for himself. Jesus was a picture of sacrifice for others, a picture of focus on others, a picture of love for others. The first passage we're going to look at is an incredibly familiar passage. John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Open your Bibles there. And there's a bunch of really neat things in this passage. We're only going to focus on a small portion of it. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. I think that we know some parts of the story pretty well. We're familiar with the fact that Samaritans and the Jews did not get along There was tons of othering to the point that they literally did not speak to one another. This was not Republicans and Democrats or Yankees and Red Sox. This was hatred, basically racial hatred, racism. That's the closest parallel to what was happening. 
There were religious differences, but there were ethnic differences, and they hated each other. Jesus talked to this woman in love. In verse 6, it says it was about the sixth hour. That is important because that is not a time when there were crowds of people around the well. It wasn't the time people went to get the water. It was too hot. It was too uncomfortable. It wasn't the time that they were traditionally there. Why were they there then? Jesus is there because he's following the perfect will of God to where he's supposed to go. And as he said, I only say what the father tells me to say and I only do what the father tells me to do. This woman is there at that time because she is ashamed. She's full of shame. God designed us for love and community. And Satan wants us in shame and isolation. And that's where this woman is. She is in shame and isolation. She's come to draw water. She immediately is hostile to him for asking for a drink of water. Not because, and culturally it's very hard for us to understand this. If he had been a Samaritan woman, I mean, sorry, if he had been a Samaritan man and had said, get me a drink. You think that she would have said, how are you asking me to get you a drink? No, she would have tried to pick him up. Are you single? What's up? How you doing? What's going on? The reason she responded in such a hostile way is because he's Jewish. And she's shocked because Jews don't talk to them. They're separate. They're totally separate. And yet, Jesus reaches out to her and then tells her who he is. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now she is trying to understand who Jesus is saying that he is. She goes back into uh, a first, a misunderstanding of what's offered. This happens to a Samaritan woman, and it's pretty easy, I think, for us to go, oh, you know, she was coming from a foreign culture. The contextualization of the gospel wasn't excellent for her. She just didn't understand. She didn't understand when Jesus is talking about water and then switches to living water. She did not know what he's talking about. She didn't get it. Do you have a canteen, Jesus? Is there an algae? I don't. What, what are you doing? I don't understand. What, how are we? Can you climb in the well? I, don't, I have stuff for water, but you don't. How could you give me water? I don't get it. Guys, we're not going to go down further, but <laughs> literally just following this in the same passage, the disciples get confused when he talks about eating. And they're focused on food. And he's talking about the word. So it's not just because she's a Samaritan woman. It's because Jesus talks about spiritual things. And in our life, in our flesh, we human beings focus on physical things all the time. I haven't asked her permission. It is Valentine's Day. I want it to be a beautiful and wonderful Valentine's Day. But we had a pretty great day yesterday until the end of the day. The end of the day, my wife is smiling in the back. What would you say? What would the summary be to you of the end, the very end of the day? I did not halt. I did not ask if I was hungry or angry or lonely or tired. And I was very hungry. And I was <laughs> so we, we talked in the sermon about 
the prophet needing to ask himself, am I hungry, angry, lonely, and tired? And the angel ministering to him in those things, providing food, providing rest, that God designed us to be able to do those things. When my wife was at a point of uh, the hungry, angry, hangry, hangriest. She's just hangry. So a great day was struggling at the very end, but it had just to do with not eating enough food. Our physical needs are very real. They also need to be fo- you know, focused on and taken care of. But Jesus is pointing to something bigger, more important, and greater. And when she understands a little bit is not when he talks about water. She says in 15, sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. I guess he's got magic water and then I won't be thirsty anymore. That sounds good. He's talking about the longing in her heart. He's talking about the deep thirst that is in all of us for a savior, for a rescuer, for a redeemer. Jesus said to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She now then wants to get back into a religious debate. Are we supposed to worship here or there? And Jesus says, you're supposed to worship me. But what's so incredible about that exchange is that Jesus offers her a relationship. The Samaritans thought that they had to finish a theological argument. And Jesus is saying salvation has come first for the Jews and then to the Gentiles, to everyone. Well, who gets to, who gets to be saved? Which group is the best? Which group is the most special? The Jews definitely thought it was them. We're the chosen people. We get saved. And yet most of them rejected him and were not saved. The people who recognized that they needed a savior were the ones who embraced him as savior. I need rescue. He stands there to rescue you. When people think that they're doing well, that everything's great, they're not looking for Jesus. Had this woman been lucky in love, there's famous, I mean, can you guys think of some famous people? Zaza Gabor, that's one I know. Uh, I think George Hamilton. I think of famous celebrities who have been married like four, five, six, seven times. Elizabeth Taylor, Taylor, right? So one thing we can tell, usually when that happens, that the person who's been married five or six times, I mean, they're, they're good at getting someone to agree to get married. They don't seem to understand what marriage is supposed to look like or they're unable within their relationship to follow through on the part of being a partner and a spouse that makes a lasting marriage. So she hadn't really been lucky in love. People who go to Vegas over and over again and get married over and over again aren't like, man, my life is awesome. It's rough. It's, It's not the design that God created for marriage. And she knew that that particular distraction, that particular search for significance, that particular lie from the enemy was not true. If you just had the right partner, you'd be happy. 
guys, that one is so big today around so many people all around us. It is huge in high school. We've got a couple of gals I'm really fond of who are in high school right now. There are so many people who it's like, oh, I hope Valentine's Day hasn't been too tough for you if you're single. It must be a really hard day because everyone else is getting the special cards and the little candy hearts that say, will you be mine? And if you, if you just had that, your life would be so perfect. And then there's a bunch of people in high school who are already in abusive relationships. There's people in high school who are already being exploited by another person, already being beaten by another person. There's people in high school whose lives are already being ruined because they're seeking their ultimate fulfillment in romantic love. And you'll never find it there. The other passage Randy's going to go into in great detail, and I'm not. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What Jesus is offering is better than romantic love. Now, romantic love is not bad. That's what we're going to see here. But guess what? Singleness is not bad either. Satan is a judo expert. Our church culture taught 1 Corinthians 7 in such a way that for a while it was like, you can be a regular Christian and get married But if you want to be a super Christian, you can't get married. Regular Christian, marriage, that's okay. That means that you're weak, you succumb to the lust of the flesh. But super Christians, they stay single and serve the Lord, much like the Apostle Paul. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here, but let's look at what he is saying. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's just, if you're married, just read that one over and over again. That's my Valentine's Day gift to you. (laughs) God designed it. It's great. It's important. It's good. But also there's an element of marriage that means that you are not yours. There's an element of our Christian walk that means we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, we're to honor God with our bodies. But when you're married, also... This is not an expression of the patriarchy. The man owns the woman and she just has to do whatever she's told. Look at the mutuality. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You have someone else whose interests you need to think of. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Obey your calling, whatever your calling is. Be content in your calling, whatever your calling is. Oh, I'm not, how do I? 
How do I check on that calling thing? Listen to God and obey him. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give... And Okay, listen to what this is saying, though. This is saying that being single can be great. It's also saying that getting married can be great. But, but what, it's not, what is not an option? You know, I just think I'm called to singleness with a lot of fornication. Seems to be my calling. I just think, you know, getting married kind of limits your options. I like to just have options. So I'm going to have some girlfriends, but I'm not going to really settle down. And I'm going to defraud them and never marry them. May have some kids with them, but certainly wouldn't want to get married. No, that is sin. That is sin. They cannot exercise self-control. They should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Uh, we'll address that Presbyterian argument later. Uh, uh, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. He then goes on, and we don't have time to go into all of this, but he goes on to say, this is to the extent, be content with your calling, that he tells people who are enslaved that they should try to get free if they can, but glorify God and not, and not give up. Because even being in slavery, you can live in freedom through Christ. That is so shocking to our culture. He is saying, as a man who has been enslaved himself in chains, as a man who's in prison, as a man who has no freedom physically, that he has freedom through Christ. And that all of us can have that freedom. That Jesus is better than romantic love or than any of the other things that we can have on this earth. You, verse 23, were bought with a price do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, what is that? Incredible persecution of the church. It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. They, their culture, our culture essentially, and this is not biblical, but this is what it's like. Our culture teaches that if you're not married, you're nothing. 
If you're not married, you're not a good Christian. If you're not married, you're not contributing. If you're not married, you don't have a place. It's not biblical. It's not true. Their culture was so messed up the other way that they were saying, if you get married, you're sinning. If you get married, you're less than. If you get married, you're wrong. Obey the calling of God. He is talking about a persecution that's going to lead to his death. But listen to what he's describing about the normal Christian life that he sees for single people and married people. Those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none and those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you, verse 32, to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's not happening. It's not true of most people, including most church people. The unmarried man is anxious about whether or not he's taking enough self-care. The unmarried woman is anxious about whether or not she loves herself enough to truly love someone else. That's not what we're called to. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. It's better Water that you drink versus water that quenches the thirst of your soul. This is not singleness is better because then you just get to do whatever you want. Man, I'd like to be on a concert tour right now, but I got these dang wife and kids and I can't do it. That is not a biblical picture. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife and his interests are divided. Guys, selfishness is at the core of the sin of America where everybody's comfortable and everybody's focused on them. The reason that the married people are concerned about something other than just pleasing the Lord is because they're focused on their, their romance, their love, just pleasing their spouse all the time. Guys, if you do marriage counseling and it's like, we both need to focus more on pleasing the Lord because we're only focused on pleasing one another. That's a good place to be, honestly, for marriage counseling. You know what almost all marriage counseling is? We're both focused on pleasing ourselves and neither of us really think a lot about obeying God. Who calls you to be others focused? Who calls you to be selfless? Who calls you to serve? God. The picture of love in the Bible, the picture of loving like Christ is a picture of self-denial. It's a picture of service to others. It's a picture of not considering yourself the most important, of not putting yourself first. It's not a picture of self-care. It's a picture of taking up your cross and following Jesus. Wait, but I thought you said the H-A-L-T thing is helpful. Aren't you supposed to eat and drink some water? Do you, are you supposed to get some sleep? Are you supposed to try to connect to a community? Yes, all of those things. 
But you do those things in order to be an effective servant, not to be coddled and comfortable and happy and what you want and what's good for you. The Apostle Paul presents a picture here of single people who are only focused on pleasing the Lord. And that married people can sometimes be more anxious and more divided because they're thinking all the time about how to please their spouse. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided attention to the Lord. So, these pictures, a Samaritan woman who has had five different folks who she's with and is now with someone else. The picture the Apostle Paul gives that is urging people during a time of persecution towards singleness. The picture of all of this is pointing to something that is greater than romantic love. No one in this room, no one in the United States, no one in this world will find ultimate satisfaction in the love of another person. It will not happen. Not only can I promise you that in every romantic relationship that you're ever in, that the person you love will fail you, I can promise you that you will fail them. There's only one relationship where we know that love never fails. There's only one relationship where mercy and grace and forgiveness flows to overflowing and fills us with the power of God. And Satan, the father of lies, will tell you your life could be good if and present so many conditions. You need a different house. You need a different car. You need a different job. You need a different... But a ton of the conditions are around our identity and a ton of our identity is around romantic relationships or the lack thereof. You can serve God just as soon as you get married. No. In fact, the church had to kind of have a warning label to say, you can serve God even if you're married Because for so many years, for such a large part of church history, people thought, I want to serve God, so I'm definitely not getting married. Getting married is for less thans. You can serve God as a married person. You can serve God as a single person. And none of us will ever get what we want from romance if what we want from romance is something only God can give. If you enter into marriage thinking that your spouse needs to give you 50% of what you lack in your life, if you're looking for them to complete you, you will have conflict after conflict after conflict because they will not be enough. But if instead you say, I am complete in Christ, I am complete in who he made me to be, then what you have left for your spouse is an overflowing love where you serve them as Jesus served the church, washing the feet of your spouse, caring for them, laying down your life, your prerogatives, your selfishness for them. For single people, 
pray for contentedness in your calling, whatever that is, whatever God's given you. The season, it could be that you're called to be single now, but not five years from now. I don't know. But pray that you will see that Jesus is greater, that his love is greater, that it matters more, that romance is fleeting and small in comparison. It is not even a shadow of the love of God. And if you're married, love your spouse well and love them well by focusing on serving God and obeying God. And when you see them saying, I'm so glad you're being selfless because I want to double down in my selfishness. That passage actually talked about that. If they're doing that because they're not saved, love them and pray for them that they get saved. And if they are saved, then point them to Jesus who calls us all to take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your love, your amazing love, your abundant love. It's so much better than than Valentine's Day. So much better than a great meal and chocolates and candy. We are weak. We get hungry and tired. We get lonely. We get anxious and we can't rest. We can't find rest. Help us to find our rest in you. Help us to know your love. Help us to be completed in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, be with us this week. Give us opportunities to serve others. Give us joy in doing that. Help us every day to think of what you've done for us and to be compelled by your love so that it overflows from us because you're filling us up every day. Help this food to nourish and strengthen us that we're about to eat. Thank you for the abundant provision of all the things you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy, the only wise God, be glory, honor, dominion, and power both now and forevermore. Amen.